You'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 4. We've been going through the Gospel of John these months, and we will be, I'm sure, for several more. We have seen that John is convincing his readers that Jesus Christ is God himself. And he has done this by testimony. We see at the beginning of, in chapter 1, John's testimony, how he saw Jesus. And he testified that Jesus was the life. He was the light. He was the one that, that uh, would be received by few and not by many, uh, not understood by, by most. Uh, we saw that John the Baptist testified to him, the last prophet of Israel, testified that this was the Lamb of God that takes away sin. We saw that, that he then goes and he has experiences, he talks to people, and every single instance that John shows us was carefully chosen to show us that this has to be God, that there is no other way, no other conclusion you can draw. So in the last couple chapters, we've looked at a couple interviews. We see that he speaks to a ruler, a man named Nicodemus, a, a very powerful, influential and very religious man, and he speaks of, Jesus speaks of a man's need to be born again and explains that, and Nicodemus's mind is blown by that. And now we, he goes back, we saw last time, and uh, John the Baptist then has to have an encounter as, as John's disciples were worried that Jesus' fame was actually being a dishonor to John. And John said, no, I have to decrease. He has to increase. And it's the best for all of us, for God's glory and for man's good, that that be true. And now we see something completely different. We are now in Samaria, and he meets with a woman of no name. There's not even a name given, um, no status, no rank, um, despised in her own town. And Jesus meets with her as well. Um, we're going to have to take this account probably in two or three messages. Uh, so I'm only going to go up to verse 15. Uh, some of the big power verses are uh, after verse 15, but we have to deal with this or it won't make sense later. So this is from John chapter 4, where we're starting in verse 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city in Samaria, uh, Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. It was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it was that saith to thee, Give me a drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence hast thou this living water? 
Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask your, your help to, to speak, to, to speak clearly your beautiful gospel, to hear, to hear clearly those things that you would have for us, to not be impeding you in any way, not being rebellious to you or disobedient to you, um, not fostering evil in our hearts, but sitting unto your gospel under, in pure hearts towards you, looking for what you would give us out of your grace. We thank you that you have brought us together, and we thank you that you are more powerful than anything in this universe, and that you have decided to be the friend of your people. And I just ask that you would enliven our hearts and make us love you, make us worship you in, in fullness of joy. And we ask that your help as we uh, sit under your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have a contrast again. We have a contrast in chapter 3 by Nicodemus and this woman. Nicodemus was, was learned. He was powerful. He was respected. He was orthodox. He was religious. He was, his opinion was valued. He was rich. He had power. He had influence. He was a man. He was a Jew. He was a ruler. And this woman is as opposite as you could possibly be. There is nothing, there's no adjective that would make you think that she has anything to give or to offer. She, she is the lowest of the very lowest. And both need Jesus. Both need Jesus. I mean, that's what John is saying. John is talking to us not just through the words, but how he places his events and who he's, who's Jesus talking to now and, and why. And what's the context behind their their discussion. So I need to, before we go any further, try to un understand with you what the Samaritans were. Because when I say this lady was the lowest of the low, maybe that doesn't make any sense to you. You would say, why? It's just a lady. She's a lady like any lady. But when you see that she is exactly, she, her interview with Jesus, one-on-one, -on -one, in the middle of the day, Okay, is completely different than Nicodemus's interview in the middle of the night. That Jesus talks to her. She doesn't talk to him. Nicodemus sneaks to come to him. There's so many things going on that John is basically telling us, and a lot of it is about power. A lot of it is about, uh, about your history, what you were given, what you grew up as. And Jesus is coming in as the word from heaven. John the Baptist last week said, don't listen to me. I can only give you a word from the earth. But Jesus is the one that's coming from heaven. He can actually tell you what you need to know because there's nobody else that doesn't have his perspective. He's the only one that has his perspective. And so Jesus is cutting through so much of what society is requiring and realizing there is sin on both sides. And if you are going to come to the Lord, you come to the Lord repentantly and to know that you have to know who Jesus is and you have to know who you are and so Jesus in his discussion with Nicodemus is talking about that 
in terms of, of Nicodemus, and now we're talking to this woman, and it really doesn't matter. God will come to the low and to the high, to the educated, to the uneducated, to the people who've been raised in a wonky kind of a mixture of a religion, and people are as orthodox as, as they think they could be. Uh, God has to cut through all of that in order to be our Savior. If he's going to save us, he has to come to us and yank us by the scuff of the neck and haul us to rescue. And he's going to be doing this throughout the book of John, and this is just the next one. So I need to know what the Samaritans are, because this said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He must needs go, is what the King James says. If he's in Jerusalem, we saw that he was in Jerusalem at the feast, and that's where Nicodemus found him. Then he goes over to the Jordan River where John was uh, baptizing in the wilderness, and then he's going to go back up to where he lives, and he lives in the north. He lives in the far north of Israel in Galilee. There's a large lake there. And so there's a huge lake at the top of the country. There's a river that goes all the way down. And then in the desert place where there's nobody living, there is a dead sea, which is complete salt water uh, that's lower than sea level, and it's just nothing but desert. And then most of the people live to the west of this river. And Jesus needs to go back to Galilee, where he is from, where he lives, and he's returning there after the festival, and he must needs go to Samaritan. Samaria. So who are the Samarians? First of all, the Samaritans themselves saw them as Jews. They saw themselves as fine, that no problem. They were descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh who were sons of Joseph. If you remember, Jacob had 12 sons. One of his sons was Joseph. Of those 12 sons, Moses takes one of those tribes, Levi, and turns them into the Levites tri- tribe, which take care of the, of the uh, tabernacle and are, do not receive an inheritance in the, in the promised land. They're given cities among everybody else's land, and they take care of the worship of God. That means that he had 11 sons, but there are 12 tribes of Israel. 12 descendants. And so what happened is Jacob, at the end of his life, adopts Joseph's two sons, and Joseph doesn't receive a share of inheritance. Joseph is very mysterious, a very, a very Christ-like figure in the Old Testament. So his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are treated like Jacob's sons and are given one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They live in the north, okay, under the lake, and that's where they are from. The problem was, is that after Solomon was king, you had David was king, second king, Solomon was his son, after Solomon's uh, days, the country split, and you had ten tribes in the north, and two tribes in the south, and the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, followed the kings of Israel, or, uh, of Judah. So David's sons, there was, a, there was a son of David on the throne of Judah uh, in Jerusalem, And the two lower tribes were called Judah. Everything else was called Israel. And there were ten tribes that were completely severed from the country. And they did not follow a son of David. They followed upstart uh, rebels. And there was nothing like Israel. Israel was one coup after another after another. One instability after another after another. And one wickedness after another. So you had a, a man named Jeroboam who basically took over and became a dictator and made himself king of Israel. So the ten tribes in the north were all under Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was worried 
because the problem with him trying to be power man was that if anybody would go back to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, then what would happen is that they would want to return to, to the kings of David. And he didn't want that. So what he did is he made two golden calves, two idols, and he set them upon the mountains and he said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. So the, the people there, in the Samaritans, only held to the first five books of Moses. They thought of themselves as Jewish. They thought of themselves as right. And they had convinced themselves that everybody else had, had done wrong and had been blasphemous and heretical and, and that they were doing right and everybody else was doing wrong. But what happened is that they just got more and more and more warped. In the meantime, their, their wickedness, we're about to study uh, First Kings in Sunday school, the wickedness of these kings in Israel, finally, 200 years later, mean that they're completely wiped out. And the Assyrians take them over, completely take them over. Take everybody out of Samaria and take, uh, to throw them to the four winds and bring other people in and put them in their cities. Mix everybody up. And so what happens is you've got people from every conquered land that the Assyrians conquered in the area with their gods, with their temples, with their idols, with whatever they have. And so what's happened is you end up with that they intermarry with these people and, they, and their religion just becomes a salad bar of all kinds of weirdness. It's so completely different from what we know is the Old Testament, what the, we know is the Hebrew Bible. It's, it's, so, it's so bad that the Jews had nothing to do with them. They hated them. They hated them because they abandoned God. They hated them because they were arrogant and they abandoned God. They wanted what they wanted, but they wanted to be arrogant at the same way. So what happened as a result is the Jews had nothing to do with them. And if you were going from Jerusalem to Galilee, most Jews would go all the way south to Jericho, cross over the river, and go in Gentile territory and go all the way up the east coast of the river to, to, the, to the lake and then cross over before you got to the lake so that you would miss this whole area of Samaritan. So it was, it was just a, it was a despised people. And so the Samaritans, it's really interesting that the Samaritans are considered the dogs. They're the lowest of the low. They're the ones you would not eat with, that you wouldn't touch. You would walk on the other side of the road to avoid because you didn't want to be dirtied with them. And that's the problem. So when you see that, that Jesus is going to encounter a woman in Samaria, you have got a woman who was not ready for her, not ready for him. You have Nicodemus who was in the Sanhedrin and a Pharisee and should of all people been ready for Jesus. When Jesus would have presented himself, he should have immediately received him with joy because he would have recognized his Messiah. He had it all right. He had it all together. Everything that he had was right. And Nicodemus was just as confused and just as, just as slow and sluggy. Um, I believe there's evidence that, that Nicodemus did, did come to the Lord. But there's certainly evidence that this woman came to the Lord. There's, there's joy and there's immediate change in her heart as Jesus has entered into her, heart, into her life. It takes religious people a lot longer, a lot longer, because religious people have to somehow unlearn all the good things that they are holding to 
the things that they are proud of, the things that are right. Because it, you, you have to give away everything to receive what Jesus has for you. If my hand is full of filth, if my hand is full of crime and disgust, and I come and Jesus offers himself to me and my heart breaks, it is actually easier for me to throw all of the garbage out of my hand away so that I can receive Jesus than it is for a person who has done right for years and years and years and upstanding and moral and right, who, whose religion is the God of the Bible. Because you have to, God does not add to your good works in order to save you. He doesn't say, well, you have a 20 and you have a 60 and 60 is almost a D. So I need to get you to a C. It doesn't work that way. There is no, it doesn't work that way. Whatever's in my hand, whether it's virtue or vice, I have to trade for Jesus. Jesus will give me everything and I have to give it all, whatever it is. So when you say that your salvation is all of God, it's absolutely the true. But you must give yourself in order to have it. You must say, whatever I am, I have to give it away. I cannot rely on my goodness. And Nicodemus had a lot more problem than this woman. And Jesus later says it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the needle of an eye, or the eye of a needle. Because if that's even possible, all things are possible with God. That was his context. That, that rich men do come to the Lord in real faith. And poor people do come to the Lord. And David said, give me neither riches nor poverty. Because if I am impoverished, then I'll despair and I won't want you. And if I'm rich, then I don't need you. So let me work in my life to where you lead me to yourself. And that's what we're looking at as we look at Jesus, interacting with all these types of people, all these different types of people. And we see here this lady is not ready for him at all. Everything she's been taught has been wobbly. Everything she's been taught is not what God intended. And Jesus does not have to say, okay, let me assess where you are religiously and let me unteach you everything and then I'm going to show you myself. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus takes us wherever we are and shows us himself. And it will cut us to the bone. The Bible is like a knife that has two sides to it and can cut on both sides as it's going in and pulling out. And it can cut all the way down to your deepest heart. And you will know when God has, has dealt with you. He will, you will know. And there's nothing you can do. He lays you open. And everybody has something different. So, you, so how he speaks to Nicodemus is different from how he speaks to the woman because they have different problems. They both have problems enough to send them to hell. They both have. But the problems that they have are not the same kind of problems. And God deals with us individually. Hallelujah, he deals with us individually. There's things that he's working on in your life that he's never touched me yet. He's never bothered me once. I've never had the twinge of guilt about those things that are just as bad in my heart as yours. But God is hitting you and hitting you and hitting you and you know that you're being dealt with now later I'll go with what you're I'll probably go down the road you've gone down and that's one way that we help each other because we don't go to first grade followed by second grade followed by third grade God takes us where we are individually and works in our lives and shows us himself and as we he loves us and we're so overwhelmed by his love then whatever is in our hand 
whether it's our wealth or our power or our, our, our self-righteousness or our good name, or whatever it is that's keeping us from him, we can give it away. Matthew gets up from his tax tables and leaves the money. Peter takes the nets and he puts it in the boat and he walks away from the boat. There's something that God will trade in your life as you see that he's worth more. And he's doing this with this lady. So this lady has no way of knowing how, where he's coming from or what he's doing. According to their idea of Messiah, if you're only taking the first five books of the Old Testament and you're looking for the Messiah, well, then you have to look only in, the, in, the, in Deuteronomy. And this is Deuteronomy 18. The Lord thy God raise up unto thee a prophet in the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. So Moses said, God's going to raise a prophet up like me, only better than me. And you have to listen to him according to all that desires the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see any, any fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I command him. So next week, when we look at the, as Jesus has turned these immediate needs that he's going to start into theological discussion, she's going to say, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. And this is the only way she would have known. She wouldn't have known anything else. She would have known nothing from the prophets. She would have known nothing from the Psalms. Nothing that showed you that Jesus was coming. She wouldn't even known to look. And so what happens is when you don't have the whole story of God's religion, the religion that God created, you're not comforted enough. I can, be, I can have a theology that's different from God's in 50,000 ways. My soul can be saved as long as I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus, and I can be messed up in 500 ways. It doesn't mean that my soul is at risk, but my goodness, it means that I'm, I'm worried when I don't need to be worried. God doesn't want you to be worried. So the gospel needs to be preached from one end of the book to the other. It needs to all be there so that when you hold on to it, you hold on to it with confidence, with encouragement, and with joy. If you're afraid of God because you don't know the whole gospel, if you don't know that all of your sins were put on Christ and Christ was destroyed and God is not offended with you anymore, if somehow you're afraid of him, but yet you're trusting him you're worried for no reason. And that's just pitiful. That's sad. That's why that you sit under the gospel your whole life. You sit under the gospel. I need the gospel over me, over me, over me so that I can eventually live like it. And I know that in many ways I'm trusting the gospel though I, though I feel it's not right or I, I, I'm, it's not in my heart yet. It's only in my head and I just trust and I trust. But as I sit under the gospel, God moves me and changes me and changes my heart and I'm more at rest. Would you want your children to be always afraid that you didn't love them? There's so many children of God that are afraid that God doesn't love them. So many. Because the gospel hasn't touched them right. And this lady only had what she was given. She only had that messed up thing that she was given. There's, imagine, when I look at the kids at the school and I just go, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And then I know what kind of homes that they're in and what kind of situations they endure every day. It doesn't surprise me. 
if you're treated like an animal, you're raised like an animal, you'll act like an animal. I mean, plain and simply, that's just the way it works. But God takes us where we are, and he doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up for him to come to us. And so he comes into this lady's town, and the Bible said he must needs go, had to go. He could have gone across and walked up the, back, the east side, but he didn't. God had an appointment for him. He must needs go through Samaria because he had an appointment at a place called Sychar, right? Now, Sychar is now in Nablus. If you know anything about, I mean, we're always hearing Israel in the news. Nablus is like east of Tel Aviv. It's in the middle of Israel, right in the middle. Uh, it's just where it always was. It used to be called Shechem, okay? It used to be called Shechem. And it's, there's a mountain there called Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim was Sanballat's temple, all right? So I need to now take you back to after Babylon. Assyria has conquered north. All the ten tribes are gone into the ends, and they've all come back, and I've told you how they're all compromised now. They're intermarried with all of these different religions, and it's all hodgepodge, ridiculous mess, a big mess. Uh, Melissa was painting some cards yesterday, and she was doing such a good job of making one color go into the next color, into the next color, and I was impressed with what she was doing. And then I remember the last time I tried to paint. I took some paints, and I'm like, I'm going to paint a masterpiece. And I started, and then it would blend, and then I, I would try to fix it. And at the end, my picture's name was Purple. I called it Purple because everything about it just mixed into just a mud hole color. And that's where she was. She lived in a mud hole land where there was nothing pure at all. Everything was so compromised. And he comes into that place. So when the, when the, when the southern kingdom comes back from Babylon, they come back from Babylon, uh, they come back with, with Nehemiah, and Nehemiah sets to rebuild the wall. And they come back with, they come back with, um, with Ezra and Nehemiah, they start rebuilding the temple and then rebuilding the wall. There is a problem man who gets in their business named Sanballat. And Sanballat is the king of Samaria. And he's really under one of the Persian kings. He's just a little, he's a little bureaucrat uh, with too much, too much power. In any case, he's always trying to stop them. He, he tried to stop the temple from being constructed. He stopped them from building the, the, the wall until the point where Nehemiah said, you have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, okay? And you're going to fight with your left hand and you're going to build with your right hand at the same time because we're doing God's work. And Sanballat was Samaria. So you have this, it's Mount Gerizim, where she lives, was the temple of Sanballat. He said, this is the temple so that you can have a temple like the one in Jerusalem. And that's what it was. It was all rivalry because he wanted the people in Samaria to not be jealous of the people in Jerusalem. So this lady now looks back 200 years, and there is a temple, and this is where we worship God. We worship God on this mountain. And God accepts us because we're right with God and everybody else in the world are going to hell. Okay? You have to realize I'm talking about today. I'm talking about today that this is the way people are. They're messed up in a hundred ways and, and arrogant at the same time, thinking they're right with God and everybody else is wrong. And you have every heresy under the, under the sun. And Jesus cuts through it all. Because Jesus doesn't say, hey, let's talk about religion. Jesus said, 
I am here as your sin bearer. And he forces you to look at him. And when you do, it doesn't matter where you are. You can come to the Lord from any place, from every place. It doesn't matter. You don't have to get better and graduate and have something so that you know now to do it. We raise our children, hopefully, under the fear and admonition of the Lord. We want them to know the living God so that they're more inclined to trust God quickly so that their lives are not ruined because we know what this life will do to them. And so we prevent them, we protect them, we shield them, we guard them. We want them to hear only the truth. We don't want to lie to them in any way. But I tell you, God can get a Christian from anywhere. He can make anybody, anybody messed up in any way Whatever people have done to children, God can take that. God can take that. Your past does not affect what God can do. Your religion does not affect what God can do. Where you come from doesn't affect what God can do. God can do anything. And Jesus comes in his weariness and sits down on the well. Sits down on the well. Now Jacob owned that well. And Jacob had given that well to his son Joseph. That was what it said here in, in the beginning of the text, that this was the plot of land where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And so you end up with the, the fact that the Bible, John, and the Holy Spirit is forcing you to say, Jacob, Jacob is in this story somehow. This was Jacob's will. This is where Jacob lived. How, who's Jacob? And you go back and you realize that Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a scoundrel. He was an absolute scoundrel. He was somebody you would never trust. He would have sold you a used car and giggled as you walked away with it, with the keys. Okay? And at the same time, he tricked everybody that he ever knew, and he was afraid of everybody he'd ever tricked. But God loved him. And God wrestled with him one day, and he was never the same after that. He limped for the rest of his life after that. And he changed, God changed his name as a result of what he did in Jacob's life. And when I just sat there as I was sitting at my desk yesterday, just looking out into nothing, looking, staring a hole in the wall, I just said, you know, it's like he did it again. You've got a lady here who has nothing. Nobody likes her. She's not liked by anybody. Her husband won't even marry her. She's absolutely just a doormat and a piece of garbage. And Jesus looks at her and wrestles with her. She's never the same. I just think that's the way the Bible works. The Bible is that God comes to us. Emmanuel means God comes to us. It's not that we try really hard and that God sees us trying really hard and he does something about us because we tried really hard. She didn't try really hard. And Jesus came to her, and it must need to be that way, because God set it up. Set it up. And she was going to be the same as Jacob. So where it's almost like her well. When I think of the woman at the well, I don't think of the woman at Jacob's well. I think of the woman at her well, because that's exactly what happened. Something happened in her life so big that for thousands of years... People have done nothing but study and ponder and think about it because what it is is it's, I'm the woman at the well. I'm the woman that has nothing. I'm the woman of no status. 
When Jesus comes to me when he shouldn't, when, why? When everybody else would have walked around and he comes to me. Well, let's see what he says. All right, so this is now verse 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then he comes to the city of Samaria, Samaria which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground Joseph gave to his son. Now Joseph, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, wearied with the journey, sat on the well, and it was the sixth hour. Sixth hour from sunrise, Okay. So this, they, they would, the Romans would do it by sunrise. So if, if the sun came up at 6 o'clock, then this was noon. And somehow she was at the well at noon, and nobody else was. There was nobody else in the whole town at that well outside town, and she was there by herself. Now, what does that mean? I can think of a lot of things that that would mean. It means that she probably didn't have any, any chitty-chatty people Nobody wanted to be around her. I mean, if you have to do your work, at least you could make it interesting by having other people to play with, to talk to, to, make, to, to do your work together so that it's not so odious and awful. But she had nobody. Nobody wanted her around. Nobody liked her. She went from man to man to man to man. Married, 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 married. Not, what's the use? What's the use? It doesn't even matter anymore. Everybody already knows my reputation. There's nothing left. So some, somehow you've got the scar, when you've got the scarlet A on your shirt, you're free in a lot of ways. Other people that are still playing the game and trying to be accepted by others and accepting others and all that, they have to play by the rules. When everybody knows your reputation and you're just the red lady, doesn't matter, but still nobody wants you. You're still lonely. You're still by yourself. And I don't know why she would go out in the broiling hot sun. Okay. James, you've been to the Middle East. I haven't. Don't know. It's, it's, it's north of the equator, but just a little bit. Hot, broiling sun, and you're out by yourself in the middle of the hot heat to do something everybody else did in the morning so that nobody would have to see you. Kind of slip around in the shadows. So she's by herself, and there's Jesus sitting on the well. And I love it says that he was weary. I think that speaks volumes. My God was weary enough that he came and sat by my well. Shoot. So, what's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Do you know the story? She's going to start talking really fast. Do you know anybody like that? That doesn't talk at all? It's funny. It's funny. Um, Melissa's not like that now because she talks with the girls all the time and has the class and all that. But at the very beginning, I would talk all day because I'm a teacher. That's all I do is talk. Talk all, talk, talk. And I come home, I'm done talking. And Melissa hadn't talked to anybody, and she wanted to talk. And I'm like, okay, just talk to her. I don't know. if Maybe it's just a man thing. Maybe it's a man-woman thing. I have no idea. But I always felt like, okay, talk to her, talk to her, talk to her. Like I'd have to remind myself to do it. Because it was like, be nice, be nice. She needs somebody to talk to. But, but he was weary. And he comes and sits down. So he asks her for a drink. Now that's amazing. He asks her for a drink. Now, in some ways, Jesus is the most conservative person in the world. He's the one who knows what God said. And he knows that it's only the real religion of God that you follow. 
that it's nothing else. He's okay with throwing everything else out the window. All of the stuff that man created, he couldn't care less. He's okay, he's okay with being, with like thumbing his face with all the silly stuff. But the stuff that's real, Jesus is seriously, really important to him. But he's a revolutionary in a lot of ways. He's a renegade. And he goes to this woman, and even though it made her so uncomfortable, he speaks to her. And he doesn't just speak to her. He doesn't just say good morning so that she can put her head down and go away real quick. He says, give me a drink of water. He requests something of her. Now, there's the second thing I, stood, I, I sat. I sat and I said, God just asked something of me. What does that mean? Does God ask something of me because he needs me? Does God ask something of me because he needs something that I can give him? And I had to come to the conclusion, no, he doesn't. When God asks something of me, it has something to do with me. And it has something to do with what he wants to do in my life. It's a crisis in a way. This woman is now has to do something. And in her doing something, he's going to be the one that gives. She's not going to be the one that gives. So she immediately just bursts into, into chitter-chatter, okay? So, so there cometh a woman from, from Samaria to draw. Jesus said, give me a drink. His disciples were out in town buying meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria, how is it that you being a Jew ask of me, which am as a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samarians? She knew she was a dog. She was fine. She's long ago thought of that. Okay, she has no trouble. She knows that her neighbors think she's a dog. She knows that her boyfriend thinks she's a dog. She knows that the people that hate her think she's okay. She's come to the determination that's just how I live. I live. I'm okay being a dog. But she was kind of amazed and talked back to him. Now, that's pretty interesting, too. It's not that he talked to her was so shocking. She talks back to him. How can you speak to me? Why would you even speak to me? But she does it almost in an honoring way. You're a, you are a Jew, a man, and you're speaking to me, a woman who's from Samaria. Why would you ever dirty yourself with me? Okay, remember Mephibosheth? Why would you deal with such a dead dog as me? I don't know that every time you're, you're humble that it's actually right. Her humility, I don't think, was right. She wasn't, being, she wasn't humbling herself. She just saw herself as nothing. There's a difference. When you see yourself as nothing, that's not being humble. That's being humiliated, and that's different. She is at a place where she has nothing, and she's showing just from her speaking that she has nothing. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God, now here's verse 10. This is the, this is the shiny verse. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says, give me a drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. Now, living water is spring water. It's moving water. Okay, But living water is more than, than spring water. It's referring right back to what God said about himself. This is from, from uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out for them cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. I'm living water that's continuously moving and fresh and, 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 and cold and, and delightful. And you would rather have a water tank that has a hole in it that can't even hold water to start with because you've rebelled against me who could give you everything, but you would rather have nothing than have me because it has me attached to it. That's what my people have done. That's, that's what God said. So he is talking about himself 
not just as the water that's refreshing, okay? If, she know, if he knows of a spring, she would rather go to a spring than have to draw down into a well. So she's still kind of not sure what he's talking about, but he's talking about God. God is the fountain of living water. I am the one that can make you be what you were meant to be. I gave you your hearts. I'm the one that can delight you. I'm the one that can make you delighted. And you would rather have nothing. You would rather have a broken water pot than have me, who is everything to you, and what you would want if you really wanted anything. And so she, she of course, doesn't know what she's saying. And so she, so she continues. The woman said to him, her, him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence do you get this living water? Now, I don't know if, you have, if you're the kind of person that has the nervous talky, I've known several people like this. They, they can't stand silence. They just have to fill it with something. And so she just starts talking. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Now, that's an interesting question. Are you greater? Of course, you know because you've, you've already know who John is, John is or who John told you Jesus is. You know he's God himself. You already know the answer to that question. That question is for the reader. Are you greater than? Now, she doesn't understand yet. She will see, see it in just a minute. But he answers and just cuts straight in. He just says, I'm going to tell you something that you're not even asking. Okay? Whoever drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give will never thirst. But that water shall, that I give him will be a well of water springing up in him into everlasting life. So there is something that God is giving you that will spring out of you unto everlasting life. And that's himself. Jesus gives him his, himself. If you, knew who, if you knew the gift of God, now we, you just saw this in John. I think this is the most beautiful written book that there is. It's absolutely beautiful. Everything that you think, you've already thought before. We just got through John 3.16. That God loved the world so much that he gave a gift. And the gift that he gave was Jesus himself. And Jesus just said, if you knew the gift of God, and you knew who it was that was asking for a drink, you would ask him. If you knew that I was God, and if you knew what God had actually done for you through me, you would then ask. Now, do you see what Jesus did? He gave her a, a time portal. He, he sent her from where she was a zillion miles to where she needed to be and gave him in a sentence what she needed. I'm telling you, that God gave a gift, and I'm the gift, and if you knew that I was God, you would ask me for that gift, and I would give it to you. I would give you something so precious that you would have no, you would do nothing but enjoy it, and that's Jesus himself. Jesus offers himself to us. The living water is not something God's going to give you. The living water is God in you, which is the hope of glory. The only hope that I have that one day I will be right and live in bliss and not live in fire is the fact that Jesus is my Savior. Nothing else. It's nothing you've done. It's no credentials. It's no check marks that you've ever done. It's the fact that because Jesus is life in you, you will live forever, and you will please God as you live forever because God is pleased with his Son, and if his Son is in your heart, and that's what he said, I will give you living water that will burst out of your heart like a, like a spring that will never stop, a well that will never, ever dry. 
And it's, it's interesting that the question he said is, do you know the gift of God? Do you know who I am? And are you willing to ask? Because the reader has all the information. The woman doesn't know yet. The woman won't be saved till next week. But I can look at this and enjoy my salvation this moment. And I can look at this as a dead soul and realize the gift of God is Jesus Christ. And he, because of his sacrifice, is offering himself to me. And if I've got Jesus, I don't need anything else. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you're kind to us through Christ. We thank you that you're mighty and majestic in all ways and that you are big enough to do as you please and you have come to our well. You've come to us. We've in no way lived right in your sight. We've in no way pleased you. and we've, We are so convoluted in our attitudes. Uh, we are we're wicked in many, many ways, but that you would still come to us in our need and show us yourself that you have asked us to think, do we know what the gift of God is? Do we know who we're talking to? And do we know what to ask for? I just thank you that you can, uh, you can preach that to ourselves. You can preach that to our souls this week, this day. And I ask for the rest of my life that I would always know who it is that I'm talking to and what the gift of God is that I might ask for life. And that that life would, would be in us, coming out of us to others. And that they would see and, and be attracted to you. Would you be comfortable? Then you are invited in Jesus' name.